Support for this podcast comes from Frito-Lay in the 2023 Snack Bracket Championship. The Frito-Lay Snacket Challenge is underway, and fans are voting on their favorite snacks to crown champion. We're talking about primetime matchups between the best 64 snacks in the land. Will Ruffles Ridges reign supreme? Can Doritos defend their dynasty? Or will Smart Food use their smarts for a surprise upset? Only you can decide. Get in on all the action for a chance to win up to $1,000 or a year's worth of snacks. Let your snacks be heard. Just go to Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com to vote and enter for a chance to win. No purchase necessary. Sweepstakes ends April 3rd, 2023. Void but prohibited. Years worth of snacks awarded in the form of 52 coupons, each good for one bag of chips. See official rules at Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com. Back to another edition of Stampede Radio. I'm your host, Chris Blystone, and I'm joined as always by Jim Campbell and Chris Shepard. Guys, how's it going? Hey, Chris. Good. How you doing? I'm doing all right. Excited to be talking about uh, playoff football because the Colts are going to go to the playoffs. Uh, well, they're they're in the playoffs now. And uh, Saturday we got a playoff game, 105, going to Buffalo to play the Bills, and. That was definitely not a certainty based on this last game, and it's exciting that that's an opportunity to watch another week of football for the Colts. Yeah, yeah it's always exciting. good. Yeah, yeah, always good to new, be in the postseason. For this show. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's crazy to think we haven't been since 2014. That's, I mean, that's the Colts mm-hmm. fans are almost like a beaten down franchise now. We're 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 not <laughs> used to this kind of treatment. Um, we need to argue our our uh, if it if it weren't for teams like the Browns who I don't know if, it, if at this point everybody who follows football probably knows that the Browns uh, head coach has tested positive for COVID and uh, in the most Browns fashion eighteen year drought of the playoffs and then your head coach uh, isn't going to be able to be at the game um, if it weren't for teams like that and terrible rotten luck like that the Colts might be able to have a case with somebody to feel sorry for us but I don't think a whole lot of, t- of uh, people are going to feel too sorry for us. Uh, that we've had to wait since 2014 to come back, but we're back and uh, almost had an opportunity. If if not for uh, some terrible def- defense on the the Texans' part, almost had an opportunity to win the division. So, definitely uh, been an exciting w- past weekend of football. Very uh, most I've watched any other teams most closely. I've watched them in a while. Um, first time I've found myself actively rooting for Deshaun Watson and then feeling really, really sad for uh, the team that surrounds him and the future that he has because they just uh, actually hired named Nick Casario of the Patriots as their general manager uh, who happens to be real good buddies with um, uh, over their guru that I can't even think of his name. Who's the crazy cult leader guy that they have as their, uh, Oh, I was, oh, I didn't know there was that connection. Oh, yeah. The, the Texans guy who was filling in as general manager, the failed preacher, or maybe, I don't know. Is he a failed preacher? Is it a I failure mean, to fall up into a general manager spot? Well, yeah. How do you I fail feel like being that's, a preacher? Like, I don't... I, I feel like that. he is definitely not a failed preacher. He's a successful cult leader. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, I don't, and, I don't that, and that cult is the Houston Texans. And unfortunately, Deshaun Watson is uh, that, mandatorily that a part of it. how that goes? You yeah, fail in the, the legitimate way of doing it. 
it's it's definitely a very <laughs> weird situation, and I'm blanking on his name completely. But Nick Casario and he are buddies, and so like once again, it's good to be in the AFC South, unless you're Deshaun Watson, in which case, uh, not so much. And I feel sorry for that guy. And I would I really, really like do. the Colts to just you know trade whoever they need to to just get him and bring him over to the Colts, so that we could have him and not have to uh, watch his career be destroyed by the the Texans. But anyhow. So let's jump over and look at the injury report this week. It's not too terrible. I mean, we've got some guys on there that are a little concerning. Um, You've got DeForest Buckner didn't practice with an ankle issue, and I assume that is mostly rest. I would guess, I mean, I don't know that there's anything to indicate it was an aggravated injury, but just maybe that they're they're resting it. He's not fully recovered, and um, he doesn't need the reps in practice. He's he's a good enough player that they can let him have that rest time, and it's probably better that they do because they are going to need him to be – having the game of his life, basically. Um, Will Holden, obviously, uh, ankle issue, didn't practice. Um, Philip Rivers with his toe, he's going to be resting frequently, I think, anytime that he can because he's already said he's going to have surgery in the offseason on that toe, so it's not surprising that he didn't practice. Rocky Sin is in protocol, which is not great because it's a short week anyway. He's going to be up against a tough timeline to be able to get back. TJ Carey has been pretty good filling in for him, but this is not the week that you want to be down secondary uh, players, although Rocky Sin has been targeted pretty consistently by uh, quarterbacks and likely would be this week as well. So um, not sure what that means exactly, but certainly not ideal to be short on on corners. Um, Hopefully he's able to clear concussion protocol and Speaking of TJ Carey, he also was limited with an ankle and shoulder issue, so he's apparently falling apart. Um, <laughs> he's got lower and upper body injuries, which is not ideal. Sort of par for the course at this point in the season. Uh, Jonathan Taylor with a shoulder issue was limited. Um, that's also kind of to be expected at this point in the season that there's some wear and tear, but not ideal when you're talking about a running back that you hope can be physical and that needs to have a really big game uh, for you to really have uh, success in the playoffs. He, he needs to have a really good run. Um, and shoulder injuries obviously makes it hard to initiate contact if your shoulders are hurting. That's not an ideal injury for a running back. He really back. likes contact also. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, he does. He does. Uh, but one of the most encouraging things on this on this report, and and maybe the thing that's going to help the Colts out a little bit, is that Kari Willis is uh, was a full participant. He was in concussion protocol. He is a huge loss in the secondary, and not having him around is a big deal. So him being back against a very good passing attack is a very big deal, um, and very good to see him uh, clearing concussion protocol. And it looks like he's slated to be back. Um, so. Overall, I think not a terrible injury report. You've got guys there who you kind of expect to be on there, and we'll be it will it'll be interesting to see as the week goes on uh, if some of those guys um, you kind of get back to some kind of practice. But I don't expect that we're going to see uh, DeForest Buckner, Philip Rivers, those guys go through grueling practice. They're it's kind of understood they're going to be uh, be able to hold their own without significant amounts of time practicing this week. So you'd rather have them healthy um, than you know getting their practice reps in. But um, what I wanted to talk about today uh, and and kind of the debrief of this season, I wanted to go through some 
some regular season superlatives, hand out some awards to this Colts team for this season. Uh, it's been a good regular season. It's been a really entertaining. I mean, by far and away a more fun season to watch of football for the Colts than 2019 was. Um, maybe didn't eclipse the level of enjoyment that I had in 2018, but man, it's it's been a huge jump from the Jacoby Brissett-led Colts uh, of 2019 and just a much more enjoyable and entertaining team to watch. So I wanted to hand out some superlatives on both sides of the ball, give guys some credit where they deserve it. And so, um, so Jim, I'm going to throw it to, I'm going to put you on the spot first. I'm going to give you first dibs and make you deeply uncomfortable. If you didn't have anything lined up here. Um, I didn't. Awesome. <laughs> I feel even better about this. So, so just, if you got a superlative that you, that comes to mind, um, who do you want to throw one out there for uh, right out of the gate? Or you can just reject that and send it back to me and I can, I can field one too. Actually, you know what? Go ahead. This is on you today. You're like, oh, I want to do this this segment with no, no, uh, <laughs> no setup. I'm just, I'm just like you guys to riff off of this. Okay, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna take an easy low hanging fruit here, and I'm gonna say uh, standout rookie, um, and I'm I'm gonna take Jonathan Taylor as this standout rookie. He's he has been a huge surprise. You could probably give him several awards. You could probably give him the uh, come the in season comeback player of the year for the Colts. Uh, you could give him. Um, you know, most improved or whatever you want to, whatever you want to say, but I'm going to give him the standout rookie because he, he, I mean, he has been incredible. He actually has done some, I mean, when you're in conversation as a guy who is, you know, co is coming short of only uh, the Colts of greats like Edger and James or Marshall Falk, these guys who have done some incredible things. When you're in the conversation with those guys, you're doing something right. And uh, he had one of the most impressive performances individually on Sunday that a Colts running back has ever had. Uh, and granted, he should have. It was against a terrible defense. Uh, and he shouldn't have been the only one who played that well. But he had 253 yards on the ground and two touchdowns. He has been electric over the last six games of the season, 720 yards and seven touchdowns, I think over the last six games um, to, to finish the season over a thousand yards. And he, I think is second only to Derrick Henry in, in rushing yards on this season. Third. So third, third. Uh, yeah, but, uh, but for a guy, for, yeah, Dalvin cook uh, for a guy who got benched at one point, um, got benched in favor of Jordan Wilkins. Man, what a turnaround for him. And gives you hope that the Colts might be able to make some noise in the playoffs because that's the kind of performance that if you get a guy hot like that, you can make some noise sometimes. So um, definitely very encouraging and uh, not a player I was always excited about. I remember on draft night being kind of stumped that they went with a running back. And I'm still not sure that I believe that was the absolute best choice for them. But obviously it's worked out in some ways that, that we couldn't have anticipated because uh, losing Marlon Mack, who knows what this team looks like if they don't have Jonathan Taylor as a part of it. Um, so definitely been exciting to watch him develop for sure real scary if we don't have Jonathan Taylor and because we didn't expect to see as much of him this year. I mean, we're, we expected to see, you know, a decent workload from him. Uh, but Marlon Mack's situation just put him, you know, up, up front and said, let's do it. And, and it was a struggle up front, but he, I, I've rarely seen this much growth from a player in their first season in particular. It's because it doesn't happen. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's I, I can't insane. think of anybody who has this kind of development right in the middle of the season and almost it, like he hit. It's almost like he just um, 
I have to think he has gotten many random uh, drug tests after week 10 because he hits week 11 <laughs> yeah. and just it's like he's a different yes. human. And yeah, and, and it's everything about the way he's played and you just don't see it. And so uh, it's been crazy. I mean, it's really not something I think that I've ever seen. And it seems like it all stems from him, his work ethic. You know, he knew he wasn't getting it. Like something something, clicked. Wasn't something obviously yeah. clicked in. I don't know. Um, I don't know what that is. I don't know what caused it to click. And and maybe it could be as simple as he finally saw it in on the field. At, at some point, he saw what the hole looked like. He he saw how things open up and the speed really just clicked in. And then he knew what to look for. And maybe he's one of those people where as soon as he identifies it, it's like, oh, man, there it is all the time. I'm, I see it yeah. now. I get it. Um, well, the game slowed down for him. Yeah. And, some, I, and, it that, takes and that's the cliche that you always hear. Yeah, a couple it, seasons it for that to happen. Yeah. 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 So if you look at if you look at his numbers, he's one of I saw this on Twitter, one of only four guys. Yeah, I think four guys in the past. I don't know how long to average five yards to carry, have a thousand yards and score 10 touchdowns. Um, it, the list was like Alvin Kamara, um, Ezekiel Elliott, like, you know, like the elite of the elite backs. And, mm-hmm. you know, uh, so you don't have to have an elite running back to win Super Bowls. I mean, the Chiefs did it last year without a guy. Uh, the Bills this year don't have an elite running back, and they're pretty good at football. Um, so, you know, the Colts, do they need a Jonathan Taylor to win, you know, football games in the future? No, but, man, it sure is fun watching them run. And, uh, I'm, yeah. I'm, you know, without them this year, I, I don't think that they're probably in the playoffs. Um and so you know he's been he's been that tackle was incredible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, he's been invaluable to the team this year, and like you guys said, just the way that he's come on is has been pretty cool to watch. So I'm glad that I get to watch Jonathan Taylor at least for a few years, and and uh, hopefully uh, you know he, despite the fact we don't need a great running back, it'll be nice to watch one. And he got some love from Derrick Henry this week too. Yeah, to cap off of a pretty good week. Um, so, you know, game recognizing game there, you know, it's kind of hard not to at this point. I I don't care. It's still the NFL team that he ran 253 yards on whether they suck or not. Yeah. (laughs) It's an NFL defense. Usually don't let up 250 yards. They did twice this weekend. Yeah. 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 Um, I, I, I've been real impressed with him. It's a lot of fun to get to watch him and, and like you said, Shepard, you don't need that necessarily, but it does make it nice if you don't have to rely on one thing. If a right. team wants to take something away, if you still have a counterpunch. So Colts have that with, with him, and and uh, hopefully he stays on that hot streak into the playoffs. So, all right, Jim. <laughs> um, I'm actually uh, – I was thinking about this. I'm, I'm going to go a little bit off the beaten path, but I'm going to go uh, – and this is actually maybe for, for Doss more than anybody. Uh, special teams ace, George Odom, uh, well, led the league in special teams tackles. And I, I had to bring it up because, you know, I basically just, you know, dumped, dunked on him all year last year, and apparently I was very wrong for doing so. <laughs> So, uh, dude was, I mean, I looked into a bit, uh, when somebody brought up that number, it was crazy. He, he was all over the place in special teams. Um, and you know, his name popped up constantly making some really great plays and some really crazy hits, um, on special teams. So I, I gotta give credit where credit's due, um, 
for a weird superlative, so a superlative. I can't say that word apparently. Uh, George Odom. I mean, I I didn't think that ultimately where we would slot him would just be the special teams master, but they this team has shown that they found out where um, a player is best, you know, positioned to succeed, and and then run with that. And it looks like they found somebody who I think can actually be a pretty good impact for us. Special teams was a pretty good thing for us for the most part this year. Well, and if, and you're gonna, if you're going to be backup secondary, you have to be able to do that. If you're going to be a backup secondary player that sticks around. And I'm a little surprised, honestly, that he hasn't uh, gotten on the field instead of Tavon Austin. Um, uh, Tavon Wilson, not Tavon Austin. Tavon yeah. Austin doesn't yeah. play for the Colts. Uh, <laughs> instead of Tavon Wilson, who hasn't been very good. Um, and I'm sort of surprised they haven't used Odom in his place a little bit, but I mean, man, you can't argue with the success he's had as a special teamer. He's been impressive, um, underrated kind of thankless position, uh, but really has made a difference. The Colts special yeah. team unit has been pretty solid all year long. And uh, uh, it, it's, it puts them in a good place. If you consistently are getting your gunner down there who can make plays and he has. So yeah, I absolutely think that yep. one fits. Shepard, you got one? Yeah, so I'll go with uh, the rookie uh, who is most likely to make people not question Chris Ballard. Is that – can I go with that? Can I, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I think that works. It feels like – yeah, it, it feels it, like it rolls year. off the tongue. It rolls off yeah, the tongue. it does. It's it's uh, not a mouthful. Um, but the guy who is most likely to make people not question Chris Ballard uh, has to be Julian Blackman. Um, Julian Blackman was a guy that I know when the Colts picked him, I went, huh, that's, uh, that's an interesting pick. Oh, and he's hurt. Um, okay. You know, that's, I wasn't excited about it, but at the same time I was, I've kind of since 2017 and, you know, drafting two all pros, you'll kind of get a little leeway from me. Um, so I didn't question it that much, but a lot of people did, uh, you know, there were, uh, there was one famous tweet. I don't remember who it was from, but a, you know, a pretty big draft guy that said the Colts just took uh, a safety from Utah. He's hurt. And it's the worst of the two safeties from Utah. Uh, and then Julian Blackman comes out and for a while, you know, until it, it kind of seems like he, maybe he hit a little bit of a rookie wall, but um, he was making splash plays and forcing turnovers and, um, you know, for a while there, it looked like that he was a serious contender to be defensive rookie of the year. And he was a guy that I think a lot of people, uh, even Colts fans question, you know, what is Ballard doing drafting a number one, a safety? Uh, we had our safeties, our starting safeties set. So we thought, uh, kind of like the running back situation. Uh, and why did he draft a guy that's hurt? Um, and then, you know, one thing leads to another. And it's like, oh yeah, I should probably not question Chris Ballard anymore. So uh, <laughs> Julian Blackman is the guy this year that uh, we should that teaches us we should stop questioning Chris Ballard. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I mean, I I think I mean nobody could be honest and say that they saw the performance out of him immediately, especially you know not even a year removed from an ACL tear right. and coming back way faster than is should be humanly possible. Yeah. Uh, but I think I think I saw something that he had like a 42 passer rating or something when targeting him on the year. So yeah. even when he has kind of fallen off in terms of takeaways that he was making these big flash plays, some of that's been 
he has been a deterrent and people haven't wanted to go at him. Um, and, and there's value in that as well. So I think, I think if you see him take a second year jump, like Kari Willis did, man, we're going to have a really good safety tandem back there. And that's, that's exciting. Um, but I'm going to jump in and kind of actually spin off of that one. And I'm going to drop the first mean spirited superlative here. And that is guy that got 2020 the hardest. Uh, and that's Malik hooker. Um, because you know 2020 screwed a lot of people but Malik Hooker um man his his Achilles got exploded by 2020 and uh that that injury is going to cost him an opportunity to get a big payday um with the Colts because he may have been able to do that I'm I'm not convinced he would have been brought back they didn't pick up his option obviously but he was probably hoping that he could at least put on film some evidence that he deserved to be uh paid well somewhere even if it wasn't back with the colts and instead he has another season ending injury um he had kind of underperformed he was supposed to be this guy who could come in and take the ball away and be this game-changing safety and what happens is he's immediately upgraded by a rookie who has been nine and a half months removed from an ACL tear. And there's just not any way that you take that to a team and feel good about it because you got replaced by a guy who was not even supposed to be on the field and the team immediately got better at your position. Um, And all the things that you were supposed to do, this guy who shouldn't be nearly as capable of doing those things is doing better than you did. So um, really a frustrating season, I'm sure, for Malik Hooker. I hope that he finds success in a system somewhere. I do think that probably if he gets fit in the the right defense, he has the talent um, to do well somewhere. And I hope that he does find it. But man, it was a tough year for him because he needed to have a good season and get himself paid somewhere he's probably going to have to take a deal that's less than what he could have gotten uh and try to kind of show that he deserves to get paid um bigger money and uh just not a not a good season for him in terms of uh it's never good when you have an injury but man it just worked out about as bad as possible for him yeah next year so i think he'll probably have a one-year deal in seattle san francisco um depending on where robert wherever robert sala goes uh, the defensive coordinator for the 49ers, it, basically just that that Seattle cover three system. I think he'll he'll sign a one year deal to try to get back, um, you know, and and show that he can still do it in a system that fits his skill set. Yeah, tough break. But, yeah. I mean, and I, it happens. I even forgot he was on the team this year. Like that's how. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, oh man! I mean, sorry for you. No offense to Malik personally, but like, I mean. He's listening. That's that's where we're at. You know, like it's when you brought it up, I was like, holy crap, he did actually play a game this year. (laughs) I totally forgot about that. Yes, he did. Um, Yeah, it's it's, it's a shame because it looked like he has, you know, the physical gifts. And early in, in his first season with us, looked like he had some legitimate promise in that system. And a change in system coaching and all kinds of other things. And then 2020 just took him out and sucks. Sucks for him. Best of luck to him. Definitely. All right, Jim, we're back to you. Now you have to. All right. Um, I I don't (laughs) know if this, I can tell this segment is Jim's favorite right here. Oh, it's great. I'm just going to call this what it is. I don't care. Uh, The gift that keeps on giving is Kenny Moore. Um, Absolutely. I, I don't know any other way to put it. I think he's probably one of the most underrated uh, corners in the league. I mean, because he's a slot corner, you know, however much that means on this system, because he's 
on the field most of the time, it seems. Yeah, when so, nickel is basically your base package. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Corner, so. um, and they've, you know, they, we've said this time and time again, they've asked him to do everything and he's pretty much done it uh, and continues to do so and continues to make plays that somebody his size, his position probably shouldn't be in a lot of cases. Case yeah. in point, that interception in front of Waller. Yeah. Stealing his lunch money. Yeah. And then his girlfriend. Yep. Basically in, in the uh in the end zone. So well yeah. and and I think that it's not hard or a stretch to say that he is you'd have an argument with Buck as far as Buckner is concerned, but you could make a decent argument that he's the best defensive player on the Colts. Um, and I don't think that it's necessarily that much of a reach. Uh, Darius Leonard gets a lot of the credit and I think Darius Leonard is a great player, but as a well-rounded all around playmaker, Kenny Moore is probably better and more consistent. Um, you don't have off snaps and it's not that Darius Leonard is, has had a bad season, um, but he hasn't been great in coverage all the time. Um, as, as Zach Hicks noted to, uh, Darius Leonard's displeasure. Um, we've been really, I don't know. We've, I don't know if we've talked about this, but Stampede Blue has been really irritating Darius Leonard lately. So I'm really hopeful that he is, uh, I'm really hopeful that he's going to go off on the bills because Shepard's made him, uh, made his, his wall. And now Zach has made it. And it's, it's, it's maybe a little unfair and maybe a little bit tongue in cheek that we're, that we're pushing those buttons a little bit, but I would say that Kenny Moore has been more consistent as a playmaker and doesn't, have sort of the off plays really almost at all. That's why it was so shocking when he did get beat on a couple of those plays early against the Raiders. And then, and then he promptly you corrected that and follows it up with highlights. Mm -hmm. So he took care of that. Um, but yeah. So, I mean, I think that Zach just told the truth uh, about Darius Leonard and I, I was intentionally trying to upset Darius Leonard. You know, yeah. There's a difference. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, Kenny Moore, I think that absolutely, I mean, he's, he's been great. The Colts obviously love him. That has maybe been Chris Ballard's best pickup of, of any kind across the board um, and has got to irritate Bill Belichick because he thought he could probably hide him on the practice squad. And uh, it makes me smile that he was taken away from it. So anyway. Yep. All right. You got one Shepard. I do. Uh, we're going to go with most improved defender. Uh, and the most improved defender is Grover Stewart. Yep. Um, Grover he Stewart. For it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he did. I mean, he earned it um, year after year. You know, it was one of those things where when he got drafted, I want to say it was what, a, a fifth round, fifth round pick from a small school. Um, and, you know, you always hope in the back of your head that that fifth round pick from a small school is a guy that's going to develop. That doesn't happen very often. Normally those guys, they play, you know, their rookie contract and, you know, maybe they sign somewhere else. Maybe they're out of the NFL. You never see him again, but Grover Stewart's a guy who he made the most of his opportunity really came in. He worked hard. He's improved his game. And then this year, um, you know, when, when the rest of the defensive lines filled out, uh, he was really allowed a lot of, a lot of one-on-one -on -one situations and he made the most of it as a run stopper and, um, you know, Grover Stewart, uh, he's, uh, he's really improved a lot and it's been, it's actually been a lot of fun to, to watch the Colts, you know, the middle of their defensive line, uh, be what we wanted it to be the entire time Peyton Manning was here. Uh, and you know, um, 
hopefully we could just find a, a Robert Mathis or a Dwight Franey in this draft and, uh, you know, things will be great. Yeah. Well, and it's, it's not often that you see a defensive tackle that takes most of three years to develop into yeah. a, a big time player. I mean, he really did kind of develop slow. Uh, maybe that was because of being from a small school. Um, but a lot of times by year three, if they're not on, you're kind of thinking this is a bust and we're ready to move on. So uh, one of the few times you'll ever hear me give props to Ryan Grigson, but it was a good pick. Um, this is a, this is a, uh, or is this? No. Hmm. This is a Chris Ballard pick. This is a Ballard yeah. pick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. never mind. Yeah. Ryan Grigson still sucks. Okay. Um, <laughs> man. Some oh, things man. are still in order. I'll give him two. <laughs> you get lucky sometimes. But, uh, yeah. But I mean, really, Chris, yeah, first, first year out, Chris Ballard um, hitting he, on guys that you even label as a miss. at, at well, he, I mean, he busted his first three picks, right, from that first draft. And then he still ended up getting three starters out of it. But – it was Grover Stewart in the fifth round, Marlon Mack, Hooker, Hooker Wilson, and uh, Basham, and then Basham. I it was uh, and Basham is is still a player. He just plays for one of the worst the football teams in the league. Uh, so whatever that's worth, right? Uh, yeah. So, but yeah, he hits on the late late round guys. I mean, I don't really care when he picks them if he gets starters. I don't really right. Know yeah. What round he takes them in? So yeah, yeah. So good job for Grover. He got paid, and yeah, mm-hmm. I, that's a, a very fair assessment of of him. Um, well, maybe go one more time through here. I'm gonna say, hmm, I'm gonna say most frustrating. Uh, the most frustrating award. We'll we'll just we'll, we'll <laughs> we're not gonna we're not gonna specify with a player. I'm gonna give that to Matt Eberflus, um, because not frustrating in that I've been frustrated with his ability, but frustrating in that you don't always know what you're going to get. This defense has been great in stretches and just kind of not in others. And I'm not sure that that's necessarily on him, but at some point you do have to give uh, some blame to the defensive coordinator. If you're not able to get your guys up all game, if you're not able to, um, consistently if you can't get your team to play 60 minutes on defense uh at a high level that's that's frustrating because they've shown the potential to be a complete shutout defense uh for at least halves at a time i mean i think i I don't know where they're at for the season at this point but at one point with i think week 15 they were barely over seven points uh average per game in the second half uh what they were giving up on defense so they've shown the ability to really shut teams down but they can't do it with consistency. And that has been really frustrating because you see the potential there and they haven't quite reached it. Now, some of that, I think, like you said, you go out and find a Robert Mathis, somebody who can, who can rush off the edge. You're going to fix that problem. And you probably eliminate that issue because you have somebody who can then make some plays when you need them in late in the game. But um, it's been, it's been frustrating partly because you know what the potential is. Um, I don't know that it would be as frustrating if they hadn't had the highs that they've had on defense, but uh, I, I don't know that that's necessarily really a knock but it's just been a little bit infuriating to watch to see this team be so good and then kind of fall off for quarters and halves at a time well and we haven't seen what in the last half of the season the defense really put together four quarters um and it's not for a while there it seemed like okay they were going to figure it out in the first half 
or, you know, see what they got the first half and then figure it out the second half and shut a team down. And then the last two weeks, we, we saw the opposite. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, there's there, there's inconsistency there that needs to be dealt with and that that has to fall squarely on, on the DC at this point. Uh, and while I think he's still really, really good uh, for a DC, I, I yeah, I'm, I'm right there with you. There's there's a lot of frustration with what's going on there. But on the flip side, I'm hopeful that some of those struggles have been enough that nobody wants to hire him as their head coach and we get to keep him because I still think <laughs> he's a brilliant defensive coordinator. And I think a lot of that has been about execution more so than specifically being yeah. on him. Um, and I, I think to some degree what we saw early in the season and Shepard, uh, you'll have to you know, weigh in if you think this is it's accurate. I think that maybe to some degree the uh, secondary played out of their over their heads in the early part of the season. I think they played above their real ability and it wasn't sustainable, especially not with uh, without having a significant pass rush. We also played worse offensive lines early, and I think that that made a difference too because there was pressure on quarterbacks early. And then we started getting into a stretch of some of these better offensive lines. Uh, we stopped getting pressure on quarterbacks, and that put more pressure on our secondary, and we've seen the result of that kind of uh, over the past few weeks. We've also played better quarterbacks in some of the back stretch of these games too. So all of those things could be factors, uh, but I wonder if that's a little bit of it. Yeah, I mean, it could be. Um, uh, a lot of it could just be that, you know, the Colts had a couple of new guys in the, the secondary and, you know, th there wasn't a lot of film on how the Colts were going to use them early in the year, too. Um, you know, you have a guy like Xavier Rhodes, uh, you know, he uh, he really excelled this year in zone coverage uh, and he had played a lot of man in the past couple of years. He had played zone, too, in um, Minnesota, but you know the team's not really sure how he's going to get used, and he comes in, and you know he he's more or less a lockdown guy, um, trying to to overcome that um, for an opponent. It's tough to do. So um, you know now there's more film out there. Guys are a little more beat up. It seems like Xavier Rhodes stays down uh, on the field uh, like once every other game right now, and he's out for a couple plays, and he gets right back in there. You can't tell me that he's at 30 years old, 100. percent um, he's just not. So, you know, he's not going to play as well right now as what he was early in the year either. So, um, you know, that's certainly part of it. Uh, I think there's uh, probably a lot of factors, but, um, yeah, you know, early in the year, they, they certainly were playing better for whatever reason than they are currently. And outside of potentially losing, you know, the, uh, the strategic aspect of, of Eberflus and, you know, the defense that he runs is, is in general pretty good. But I think one of the biggest impacts and the thing that I don't want to lose from him is the uh, the culture that he's built in this defense and the mindset, maybe the philosophy of this defense, you know, this, yeah. this swarm mentality that they've, they've developed where um, it, I just don't see another team behave that way. Um the the constant attempt for for producing turnovers maybe not always to you know our benefit because uh, you know can't always wrap a guy up if you're swiping for the ball but they've produced a, a good chunk of turnovers that way and we've seen the fruits of that labor and and that that work of of setting that that mantra that that into the uh, the mindset of of the defense and clearly they work on it every day. 
yeah. everybody on that defense is trying to get that ball at all times. And I just, now I'm not that every NFL team isn't doing that, but I just feel like I see more effort, you know, and not just because I watch the Colts every time, but I'm seeing it from the other teams they're playing too. There's just not the same amount of effort yeah. to produce that, that game changing turnover that, that this team is always going for. So well, I mean, if you, if you hire Matt Eberflus, that's what you're hiring. You're hiring him for yeah. the Colts. You're hiring him for, Really, his philosophy as far as the game, grading players on their hustle scores, uh, things like that. You're not, you're not hiring Matt Eberflus because he's a brilliant tactician. Um, you know, I'm not saying I, I don't want to take anything away from him uh, from an X's and O's perspective, but as far as defensive schemes goes, his is one of the simplest. Um, so you're not hiring him because he's going to promise, you know, new revolutionary schemes uh you're hiring him because he is uh he is a guy that's going to change your culture he's going to come in and he's going to instill you know uh, uh, an attitude of hustle and and those things and the colts would be losing that if if he were to to be hired away now you know guys are are still going to be around they're going to remember it but it, it won't be the same uh, no matter who the colts would you know either call up as a defensive coordinator or hire in from outside uh, it, it just it wouldn't be the same without Eberflus, and um, you know, for his struggles and and all the things that you know, you certainly there are times when it's frustrating, um, but at the same time, I want to say the Colts are still a top five defense this year, and um, you know, part of that is personnel, and part of it is Matt Eberflus. But again, it's uh, it's been an up and down top five. It hasn't been a, a rock solid, steady top five. Well, and you have to give him credit for. Uh, as you both have talked about, um, I mean they're a, they're a team that takes the ball away, and mm-hmm. uh, really some of the pre- some of the pressure needs to fall on the offense to do something with it when they take the ball away. And Chris Ballard has talked about that a lot in the off season over the past couple seasons. Is points off of turnovers is a big emphasis, and so there's nothing Matt Eberflus can do about that. But getting the ball uh, for the offense is is his uh, part of contribution, and they they have done that well and taken big strides in that this season over what they've done in the past. So definitely a feather in his cap, uh, not necessarily a knock, but it is a little frustrating that there's not more consistency. And so I don't know what you uh, hang that on. I haven't been able to find some reason why there's a fall off. I know there's a fall off also on offense, uh, but, but yeah, it's, it's been a good season overall for him. I'm hopeful that we're still an offense driven league enough that he's going to not get quite as much interest for some, from some of these teams, especially teams who have just parted ways with a defensive minded coach. Um, And, and I, I, if I'm hiring a head coach with a new young quarterback i want an offensive mind just like the colts brought in mm-hmm. uh, I, you want to pair them with a guy who's going to run the offense and get defense get a good defensive coordinator but not necessarily somebody to pair with your quarterback so hopefully that works in the colts favor we'll find out i guess yeah. uh any other ones that you guys want to throw out there i don't have anything positive, no positive. <laughs> <laughs> um maybe the player uh that most challenged colts fans worldview <laughs> Philip Rivers. Oh, yeah, um, I, like I, I like it. A um, lot. You know, I, he hasn't been spectacular this season, uh, but you know, there was some doom and gloom from some people um, early on. Uh, you know, we weren't super stoked, you know, up front, but we were hoping that we would see, you know, better quarterback play, and I definitely think we have. Yeah. Um, 
he he still does real dumb things from time to time and his now very visible lack of arm strength has gotten us into some precarious situations also but i mean clearly the guy knows how to run the offense um is not afraid to take a deep shot you know which is what what is we were sorely lacking uh, mm-hmm. among many other things uh last season and one thing I noticed that was really interesting was the influx of uh, Chargers fans uh, coming into, you know, Colts Twitter or the, you know, the yep. the subreddit and whatnot, and yeah. they flat out love that man. Yeah. And and after watching this, it's all well, his kids. It's his kids yeah. on. <laughs> and and they all they all call him dad. It's yeah. really weird. Uh, <laughs> but. Um, he, I, I can see it, you know, it, having him for as long he as they a did. Bit of that Brett Favre kind of vibe of a guy who just mm-hmm. enjoys the game and it's infectious. Yeah, he he clearly loves playing football. Um, we were traumatized by him several times uh, as Colts fans, you know, earlier in in his career, and and also he talked a lot of smack, the weird wholesome smack that he does talk. Yes, and. I've kind of come to appreciate it. Um, Dad, gummit, I can never get behind it. <laughs> oh no, that. Well, I, his not not his. I I don't trust a person who doesn't curse. But um, and speak uh, on their finger. <laughs> but the um, I I I've come to really appreciate his his fire and his drive uh, to play the game. He clearly loves playing football and having a good time, and 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 that comes out. Um, you know, I, I've heard a couple of players talk about this and why teams are do well where, you know, hey, we work real hard in practice, but then game time, it's time to have fun and play football, you know, and and that's why we work real hard in practice. So it is easier to have fun when it comes time to play the game. But when when the players are loose and having a good time, you usually tend to see good football in in those periods. So They pay me to practice. I play the games for free. Marvin Harrison. Yep. So, yep. Um, so yeah, you know, uh, there was definitely some some ups and downs with him, but um, you know, we're sitting at eleven and five, uh, and heading into the playoffs. Um, not completely because of him, but he was definitely a, a contributing factor to why this team was able to put together eleven wins. I, I think that we got everything that we had any right to expect out of Philip Rivers. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah. I think yeah, maybe uh, more exceed expectations. He's had one of his best seasons in terms of not turning the ball over. Um, and he hasn't done the backbreaking turnover thing that we were really worried was going to be a factor all season long. That was early. And I think as he started to get uh, a rapport with receivers, he's really cut down on, on interceptions. Even uh, he hasn't made a lot of really, jaw-droppingly bad throws. He's made some, uh, and when he gets pressured, he Mm -hmm. definitely makes more. Uh, But that's pretty much any quarterback. Uh, Mm -hmm. And he doesn't have – he kind of doesn't have that – You know, a lot of older quarterbacks know they don't have the arm and they won't take a shot. And Phillip Rivers doesn't quite have the arm to make all the throws, but nobody's told him, and he (laughs) – shots, and he's he's making some of them still. Um, And I think that's that's actually what you'd rather have. You'd rather have somebody who errs on the side of bombs away and doesn't know they don't quite have the arm. Um, 
than you would somebody who's gun shy and won't take the deep shot. Cause that's what mm-hmm. we had with Jacoby. He's got the arm. I mean, if he had the processing that Philip rivers has and the ability to pull the trigger on some of those throws he ought to make, he's he'd be a dramatically better quarterback, but he, he's not that um, Philip rivers in my mind has been so much better than I expected him to be. Um, and yeah, I I've been really pleased with it. I I'm also pleased that I was able to reconcile the idea of having Philip Rivers on our football team and me not, yeah. not being miserable with it. I know Shepard took longer than, than most of us even to, to come to grips with that. But yeah, he's made it fun to watch watch football. He's got the Colts in good spots in terms of uh, being in the right play. And there have been some games where he absolutely has put the team on his back and carried them, not all of them. Um, and he hasn't had to do that all the time, but they need a quarterback who can occasionally do that. Um, it would be unwise to ask him to do that all the way through the playoffs if they uh, if they expect him to throw their way to a win on Saturday. I think that's a bad plan. Um, but he has proven to be a very good acquisition by Chris Ballard. And I think uh, yet again, another reason why it makes sense to trust the things that the moves that he makes, because he, he just understands what they need and, and has brought in the right guys. So. Well, I yeah. think it shows a, a trust in his coaching staff too. Yeah. You know, um, for sure. These, these guys, you know, <clears throat> you, you can't discount the amount of time that Sirianni and, and Reich have spent with, with rivers over the course of his career. And it just made too much sense with the cap space we had to just plunk the cash down, get him in, especially with COVID. Could you imagine we plucked some other quarterback that did not have the familiarity of the system, uh, no matter how good they were? You know, if this wasn't a lot what of Colts fans are really upset we didn't sign Cam Newton when we could have. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Um, I think with this O line and Reich it would have probably been a better outcome than that was with the Patriots. Um, mm. Not much better. Uh, because can't I think, he, I think yeah. he's done. Yeah, he's, <laughs> he's, um, and if we had Marlon Mack, he definitely would have had to throw much, but no, that would have never, never worked out. Plus, like I said, we just, it was this weird amalgamation of this, this time, you know, the weirdness of the season, um, being able to land rivers with, you know, and put him with the coaches that he already knows. So not a lot of work had to go into getting him up to speed and which worked out in our benefit because he didn't have the time to build a rapport where they needed to. No quarterback could have been better prepared for empty stadiums than Philip Rivers. Exactly. He's basically been doing it for the past couple of seasons. Anyway, I do feel really bad. I hope that he, uh, if I, I, I hope that if, the Colts want to bring him back. He gets to come back one more season and actually have fans at Lucas oil stadium because mm. uh, I think he would get some love and it would be nice for him to have a, a season. Uh, it would suck to have your last season be a season where there are no fans. Uh, it sounds like that's going to be Drew Brees's case and that sucks to, to go out that way. And, and yeah, uh, so I don't know, hopefully rivers gets to come back and do that. Uh, unless of course the Colts can find a significant upgrade in which case, sorry rivers, but um, yeah, probably won't happen. You, I don't yeah, know. It doesn't seem upgrade. like there's one just sitting uh, out there waiting to be drafted or, or yeah, it's going to be a substantial immediate upgrade that would prevent them from bringing him back for a season. So, all right, well guys, uh, we're going to take a quick break. And when we get back, I'm, I've got an interview, uh, lined up here with Greg Thompson from, uh, cover one. He's going to go over a whole bunch of stuff bills related, and then we're going to have our regular game preview podcast, 
uh, coming out later this week where we're going to kind of go through the in-depth how the Colts can can deal with the Bills. But but Greg and I talked uh, for about an hour, uh, so it's a little bit of a long podcast. I apologize for that. But he really went in detail on each position group for the Bills. So if you are wanting to know all about the Bills, a uh, really good place to dig in there, uh, listen in to that. And if you um, and then if you want to kind of know the Colts side of that, come back uh, and listen uh, for the later in the week podcast, we'll try to get that out and we'll dig uh, deep on how the Colts need to attack the, this Bills team to keep playing on, on beyond this week. So, um, yeah, we'll be right back after that. And uh, that interview will be on. And, uh, and then, yeah. Hello, I'm Neelai Patel, the editor in chief of The Verge and host of Decoder, a business podcast where I interview CEOs about big ideas, the problems that come from those ideas and how they make decisions. It is also surprisingly about org charts. It comes up a lot. We're launching a new limited series that we're calling the Centennial Series, where I talk to CEOs of companies that are over 100 years old, like Xerox, Barnes & Noble, and more. There's no 100-year-old company that's without its struggles, and it's been fascinating to talk to these CEOs about which parts of these companies' history are important and which parts they can let go. A little spoiler for you, if a company is over 100 years old, there's a lot of drama to talk about. It's been a good time. You can listen to the Centennial series right in the Decoder feed. New episodes of Decoder are out on Tuesday, and the Centennial series is out on Thursdays. Check it out. We think you're really going to like it. You can get it wherever you get your podcasts. Most of the time, we talk about tech in terms of a handful of gigantic companies like Google, Meta, and Apple. But some of the most interesting stuff we find online is the product of a single person. When you're working on your own, I think there's this beauty of being able to come up with an idea and then implement it. Then, in that moment, you don't have to have permission from someone else. There's no red tape. In the Vergecast series, Solo Acts, we'll get to know these people, the tech they use to get stuff done, and the obstacles they face trying to compete with the giants. Some people that I talk to and my friends are like, you know, your competitors are Zuckerberg and Musk. Like, aren't you kind of, like, afraid of that? Every Monday, our friend Ashley Escada will be curating and hosting these interviews and sharing with us what she's learned. I can't believe the McRib locator was originally a tornado locator. Right. <laughs> Pretty wild. Listen to our Solo Acts miniseries now in the Vergecast feed, anywhere you find podcasts. I am joined by special guest and host of the Cover One Buffalo podcast, Greg Thompson. Greg, thanks for coming on. And uh, welcome to the podcast. Absolutely, Chris. I appreciate it. Looking forward to being able to talk about it. And it's it's fun to be in the mindset and mode of talking about playoff games. That's that's a new experience for for most Bills fans and Bills, uh, you know, media members and content creators. But it's uh, something we're hoping to get used to. Absolutely. Well, before we jump into talking about anything uh, Bill related, I want to give you a chance to kind of give our listeners uh, a, a background of your, I would say, maybe. Uh, your your football specific background. Uh, what made you fall in love with football? What it is that you do? Um, your Bills fandom? All, anything that you know that kind of gives us a look into uh, why you do what you do and what you uh, love about the Bills. Absolutely. So, like most Bills fans, are born and raised in Western New York. There's not a whole lot of people outside of there that that grow to love it either, or didn't grow up in a family that came from Western New York. So it's usually something that you're born with. Um, and I've moved around a lot since then, but obviously stayed. Uh, that that's my my one dying passion. I joke all the time. I, I love the Bills more than anything. I'm not related to is is about the the closest I can get. Um, you know, I I played in high school, played in college, got into some of the the film breakdown uh, from that way, learning how to do you know 
game game plans and breakdowns went into a little bit that direction. You know, went a different direction professionally, um, and now I do a lot from financial analysis and things. So that led me into playing around with you know I'm a nerd and read the CBA and, and go through all the different things and you know have built relationships with some of the guys at Spotrac and and over it over the cap and and try to get into that side of things. So I'm more of the the capologist at Cover One and then work with guys like Eric Turner who I think is one of the best film film analyst out there does a fantastic job and kind of help build things up and now uh mess around and have some fun with aaron quinn and uh host the cover one pre-game and post-game shows and starting to to build our little world over there and having good time with with bills fans and for for colts fans obviously know some of the guys who, who collaborate with us from a draft breakdown standpoint um so you know lots of good stuff for you guys to find over there from a draft standpoint absolutely well i was telling uh, the guys in our slack channel today I, I don't know that this is always true, but I think maybe the Bills fans are one of the coolest fan bases uh, that I know of. I, I had a roommate who was a Bills fan who was a crazy man, uh, but also just a cool guy. Um, just so many Bills fans I've interacted with. I feel like uh, it's hard to be both a fan who has suffered a great deal and also not just be kind of miserable. And Bills fans seem to be very hopeful, <laughs> but not like – they don't blow the way the wind blows. They're hopeful. They're optimistic. They're also uh, realistic. And, and you don't always find those blends. Usually there's uh, – you think of Browns fans who are you know great people, but, man, they've been kicked around too. And it's kind of like they're just they, – all the wind has been taken out of them. And Bills fans, I always appreciate uh, the honest – reflection on their team the the optimism the hopefulness uh but not really like an arrogance that you get from some teams that you know like uh, we're, we're big haters of the titans on this podcast sure. and titans fans are kind of insufferable because they'll win a they'll win a series of games and they cling to it and uh they win a big game and they're up and then they lose a game and they're down and they're it's so we like to like to poke fun at them but bills fans seem like they're very grounded uh except for when they're tailgating maybe yeah, so some get a little, maybe a little inebriated, but uh, it's something where, you know, if anyone's been a Bills fan through this stretch, especially the, the last 25 years, it's pretty well earned. Like, you've had to stick through some pretty barren times here, you know, 17 straight years without the playoffs. That's a rough run. So being able to survive through that, it is weird. There is kind of a consistently guarded optimism that, you know, like, oh, this is going to be our year. Um, even when you probably know it's not going to be our year, uh, it, it, it's something that I don't really know exactly where it comes from, but I'm certainly glad it's it's formed a great deal of my outlook on life, to be honest. I, I approach almost everything that way. And all, a lot of my friends and adult friends joke about how I'm able to find kind of the silver lining or the positive side of just about anything. Um, and I don't know that it's directly from the bills, but maybe it's a little piece of it. Absolutely. I, I could buy that. I mean, it, it, it seeps into every part of life. Well, yeah. uh, jumping right into it here. First thing I wanted to talk about off the bat is uh, offensive coordinator, Brian Dable, big name in uh, open coaching jobs, probably a guy who I don't know how many, uh, interviews he's been set up with at this point, or at least been requested. Uh, but I've seen his name quite a bit, and it's well earned. I mean, he's he's been a very adaptive uh, play caller and just been a really impressive guy. The offense has been electric uh, this season, specifically. And uh, so, what has his impact been specifically for the Bills? Uh, and are Bills fans concerned about losing him to a head coaching gig? Um, certainly, you know, I think there's a, a great deal of concern, to be honest. And it's it's really in the matter of how 
no one's quite sure exactly what the recipe has been of how Josh Allen got to this point. We know that some of it is the weapons Brandon Bean has added. We know some of it is Josh Allen being willing to strip it down to the studs and rebuild his mechanics with Jordan Palmer in the offseason and his improvement. And we know some of it is Brian Dable and how well he's adapted the game plan and the very opponent-specific and matchup-specific game plan. He's not one of those regimented, oh, this is what we do and this is all we're going to do. He goes and looks at every opponent. Whatever your weakness is, he's going to nitpick it. And I mean... I mean that to the extreme degree. You know, you heard Pete Carroll's comments after the Seahawks game that, oh, well, we had a great game plan to shut down the run. Well, Brian Dable didn't care, and he passed it on 28 of the first 30 plays of the game because he knew they could rip apart their secondary. So he's not only going to lean into what your weaknesses are, he's going to smash it with a sledgehammer, and you're going to figure out a way to stop it, or we're going to put up 56 points. And it's just a matter of... I know there's other pieces to it, but I know Dable has been a good part of it. So I'm fully prepared for him to get a job. He deserves to get a job. Um, I think he's in a really good spot with the infrastructure around there, leadership like Brandon Bean and Sean McDermott, a weapon like Josh Allen, and then surrounding him with Stephon Diggs, John Brown, Cole Beasley. Um, I think you know he should look good, but he does, and he deserves the credit, and, and I'm I'm happy for him that he's. I think he's going to cash in on it. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's exactly – it's it's a catch-22 because you obviously want to have coaches that are performing so well that they're attracting attention. Obviously, when you're when your position coaches are getting attention, that means they're doing something right, and that means your team's probably doing some some really good things as well. Um, but yeah, it's a bittersweet thing for sure. Uh, and I think that the league is ripe for coaches who are kind of out of that old school mentality of we're going to impose our will uh, and looking for guys who are going to have those game to game adaptive approaches that are going to find a way to beat you at the thing that you don't want to do. Um, not just stick to whatever it is that they like to do. And man, when you can find somebody like that, you gotta, you gotta do uh, whatever you can to get them. And I think there's going to be a lot of teams that are going to look at him and think this is somebody we need to have on our team. Certainly. Uh, so I, I want to give you, I don't have a question about him, but I heard you mention him and I want to give you a chance to just gush about him because I feel like this is an underrated guy. Uh, Brandon Bean He's starting to get some recognition. Bills fans, I know, uh, know how good he is. But uh, Chris Ballard gets a lot of a lot of props for the the job that he's done with the Colts, and I think they're deserved. Uh, but I think Brandon Bean is maybe an underrated general manager that is, I think, like like I said, it's finally starting to come uh, to the fore. So I want to give you just a chance to kind of gush about what he's done, uh, how you feel he's handled things uh, with the organization, and just just to pump him up a little bit. I don't have a question, but I'm just going to give you the floor and let you gush. No, a no. Bit. Um, you know, someone that is been a blessing in disguise. I don't think a great deal of people were familiar with him. Maybe some people knew his name. He had a brief run as the interim GM in Carolina before they ended up asking him to step back as the assistant GM when they brought on Dave Gettleman. Um, he wanted that job pretty bad, and then they, they allowed him to move on and then had the entire thing where he left like a month before. They ended up firing Gettleman and hiring Marty Herney, and everyone kind of wondered, you know, he spent 17 years in that building and born and raised in that area, wanted that job, knew the people in the building. Very surprised that it turned out that way. But obviously, Bills fans are, are pretty ecstatic about it. So, you know, it, they haven't all been hits. There's certainly things that, you know, like any GM, that there's, there's misses. But, you know, when you look at the core structure 
he and Sean McDermott walk in, you know, a couple months apart, but I'm going to count all the moves that happened as though they happened together. Um, their first two signings are Micah Hyde and Jordan Poyer. Their first two draft picks are Tredavious White and Deion Dawkins. The next year they come back, they add Cole Beasley, John Brown, John Feliciano. The first two picks are Josh Allen and Tremaine Edmonds. You lead off with a handful of signings and draft picks like that. That's going to set the foundation for, for everything that's there. So it, it's something where, you know, it's come together. They've supplemented well. They, they've taken a sound approach for things. They were patient. And, you know, they had the most dead cap in NFL history at one point when they really cleaned house. But um, having somebody who is willing to rebuild it that way uh, has been really encouraging. Yeah, well, and it's encouraging to see that uh, for Colts fans because we're doing a very similar thing um, and uh, unfortunately got short-circuited a little bit with Andrew Luck's surprise retirement, but uh, really in the same kind of trajectory. And you just it seems like a no-brainer, but not all of these general managers, and and I think credit system to ownership as well, have the patience to do things that way. Um, You see teams that just don't have the patience, and and it also takes getting the right guys because you can be patient with the wrong guys and and be in a, a mess and just waste a lot of time. But, man, when you have a good general manager, and it's not just about the draft because you're going to miss on guys in the draft, but it's also, like you said, about those free agents that you bring in that that hit, uh, that you're smart in your cap management so you can keep the guys that you need to keep, um, that you don't get sentimental and keep players you shouldn't keep because because yeah. they're beloved players. Um, those are all things that, man, if you if you don't have a good GM, you can get into the into a lot of trouble that way. So uh, definitely not an underrated guy. I think that we're going to hear his name more and more, obviously, uh, especially with the, the last several years of, of success for the bills. So um, jumping right into it, uh, the most impressive guy on the roster, maybe the bills and maybe you'll, maybe you'll disagree because uh, certainly Stefan Diggs could, could take that category, but Josh Allen has just had such an incredible year. Um, taking some people by surprise, Probably not as much Bills fans. I think that for many Bills fans who watched him carefully, this is kind of an expected step maybe, but I don't know if anybody could have seen an MVP-type season leap from last season. Um, to to really make him – if if Aaron Rodgers isn't having the season he's having, it's, it's almost not a discussion um, because he's been so good and uh, so good in so many ways. And so – I mean, he's he's finished actually a, a great season on a tear. The last several, get about three or four games, he's really been on a great pace. Uh, what's helped him take that step and really make this big leap into MVP, top two, three quarterback in the league kind of of air? So you know, obviously, Bills fans and even the the ownership group. You talk about I, you know, I, I understand analytics. I'm comfortable with why they're utilized. I get how the statistical analysis showed he was the most likely bust probability of any top 10 quarterback that's ever been drafted. I watched the film. I, I saw what they saw at Wyoming. I looked at the numbers. I, I get why they you know, showed that. What they didn't show is, and I joke all the time, I call Josh Allen is what Jeff George or Jamarcus Russell could have been. And if they came in with the humility, the willingness to be coached, the the desire to, you know, like I said, rip your mechanics down to the studs and rebuild them with Jordan Palmer every offseason, you could have seen this kind of progression from guys who were just, 
gifted with a howitzer connected to their right shoulder. And instead, he treats every offseason like he's an undrafted free agent and, and wants to re-earn every single rep that's out there. So you combine that with, you know, all of the pieces they've added around him and his their, their willingness to be patient and to fight through some rough patches that they were willing to go through because they saw what he was doing and what the potential was. Um, now, with that aside, anyone who tries to say that they saw one of the top three fantasy seasons in history, one of the top two cumulative EPA seasons ever, um, the a top seven in ESPN QBR ever, you know, those kind of things, they're lying. Nobody saw this. Nobody saw him legitimately being, you know, a good argument for the MVP and at worst third in the MVP, probably going to get the second most MVP votes would be my guess right now. Um, anybody who said they saw that coming, either was having a couple beverages or is lying. They just, they just, nobody saw this. Um, now the combination of what was there and in hindsight, what he was building, what Dable was creating and what it did to unlock with the talent around him and the, the, you know, I'm sure we'll get to it with Stefan Diggs, the cascade and domino effect of adding him, what it did to the other weapons. It's been incredible. So I, I thought we were going to see, the high variance upside that we've seen in spurts. I thought we were going to see this. There's no chance that I saw, thought we were going to get the consistency and that he's got 69% completion percentage. Like you, I would have bet my mortgage that that was never going to happen. Um, and that our best case scenario was like Cam Newton's MVP year where Cam had yeah. 35 passing touchdowns and 12 rushing touchdowns, but at 59%, completion percentage, but at a huge yards per attempt and a high touchdown rate, and he hit on a bunch of bombs. Well, Josh has hit on all the bombs and had 69% completion percentage. It's just unbelievable that he's put everything together like that, and I'm I'm ecstatic that he has, but I'd be lying if I said I expected it. Well, I think that some Colts fans are going to be a little surprised because I think that there's just not a lot of knowledge about the Bills, uh, not a real familiar opponent, and I, I've heard it in our uh, in our chat that the Colts fans are, are maybe some of the most uh, – <laughs> we're a fickle fickle is not the right word but we blow like the wind at times uh since the peyton manning era we haven't built up that level of of t mental toughness that's needed because you don't do that through winning all the time uh i don't want to say that we're like patriots fans because i'm sure no, i sure hope i sure you're, hope we're you're certainly not like that you're certainly not like that but there's a little bit of of a tendency to um to overestimate ourselves when we're playing well. And so I think that they're going to be surprised a little bit by what they see with Josh Allen. I really uh, have told several people, this was not the matchup that I wanted. This was maybe the matchup I wanted the least um, in the AFC. I almost would rather have, have faced the chiefs than have to face the bills up front because I just think, man, the things that, that Josh Allen by himself can do are just so impressive and, and difficult for the Colts to deal with. Uh, we see a guy who has some of those same types of abilities in Deshaun Watson um, mm -hmm. and uh, man, the Colts struggle. So it's going to be really interesting. I'm excited, but I do want to jump into the the guy who I think has probably played a, a pretty big role in taking that next step. And that's Stefan Diggs, uh, who has also had a crazy year, leads the league in receiving uh, yards and is by his, by a wide margin, his best season as a pro. And uh, so what specifically, apart from obviously, you know, statistically he's doing well, but apart from that, what has he changed about the way the offense is able to operate that's that's really helped you think in your estimation them be so successful? So I think 
one of the things that I was most optimistic about coming into the season is previous to this year, Josh struggled with anticipation, timing, and he needed to kind of be able to see it before he would throw it. Well, I was ecstatic. As soon as the trade happened, I was t- you know shouting from the rooftops, this is literally the perfect receiver for Josh Allen. He's arguably the best route runner in the NFL. He's one of the few guys who can visually flash open. Like he can roast his defender so badly that you can see him open by a yard or two. Well, now Josh Allen's arm strength becomes an advantage because he can get the ball there before the defender can break on it to get there. I'm like, this is going to be great. You know, he's he's not going to have to worry about the anticipation and the timing. Diggs' route running is going to be a, a gift to him. Well, instead, it, it has been on one side, except Josh has added the anticipation and the timing and those things of it, where now he's hitting some really impressive throws where Diggs isn't visually open and he's layering it in there perfectly for coverage. But what what Stefan Diggs truly did was unlock the rest of the offense because we had everybody playing a slot above where they should have been. John Brown produced some wide receiver one numbers last year, but he's not a wide receiver one in anybody's offense. Cole Beasley was playing as the wide receiver two, but that's not where you want him to be. So all of a sudden, now John Brown gets to be your wide receiver too, that you can't tilt coverage towards. And Cole Beasley gets to be your slot receiver where you can, you know, if they get him lined up on a linebacker, best of luck with that. And then you add in Gabe Davis as just your athletic toy as a wide receiver for that, hey, go deep every once in a while. And he stumbles into seven touchdowns just because you're so worried about John Brown and Cole Beasley and Stephon Diggs, you forget about him sometimes. It pushed everybody down a notch where it just made it that now they can be very matchup specific. If you're going to run man, you're going to have trouble with Stefan Diggs and John Brown. If you're going to run zone, you can bracket them a little bit and be able to control it. But Cole Beasley's probably the best at finding spots and holes in the zone of any receiver in the NFL. And you go through those kind of things, it really has turned it into a pick your poison kind of situation that. I don't think many Bills fans thought Josh was going to be able to take advantage of, and he's come through in spades. Well, leads us in perfectly to my next question, and that's about Cole Beasley because he's had, like you said, a really great season. He's uh, just short of 1,000 yards, I think, on the season. Uh, And he is right now listed as week to week. Um, Maybe not going to play on Saturday. So what impact does that have on the offense, and how might they look to replace his production? You specifically talked about – that he's he's a guy who can find really good weaknesses in the zone. Colts run a lot of zone. That's probably yep. he's he's a guy who certainly could have been a problem for them. And if he can't play, um, what do you anticipate the Bills maybe look to find that production from? So my guess right now is that it would be less than 50-50 that he plays. I don't think it's determined that he's out. I, I think there's a shot. I mm-hmm. think that if the Bills are able to to beat the Colts, I think we would see him the following week. But sure. I, I think that, you know, I don't know that it's as simple as one day earlier on Saturday instead of Sunday is going to you know, not be quite enough. Um, he Because he's been out, it's 13 days versus 14 days. He sat versus Miami. Um I know he's going to try to gut it out to play. So even if he does play, I don't know that we see 100% of Cole Beasley. Um, Assuming he doesn't play, I think you're going to see Isaiah McKenzie in that role. And actually, I think you'll see Gabe Davis play more, but move Stephon Diggs into the slot is how they would handle it. They'd go John Brown and Gabe Davis on the outsides, run Stephon Diggs out of the slot, and then give Isaiah McKenzie some additional touches. You know, 
we somebody put out a tweet earlier that in Josh Allen's rookie year, we had to trade for Kelvin Benjamin as our number one receiver. Right now, we have Andre Roberts and Kel, uh, and uh, Kenny Stills on the practice squad because they can't make our active roster. <laughs> so being in that kind of position that, you know, heck, maybe we bring up Kenny Stills as just an extra guy to throw in there as our wide receiver six. Um, sure. It's it's a much different position than we've been in for a long, long time. So it won't be the same without Cole Beasley, but it's it's certainly not a, a death blow by any by any means. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, so going to jump into this, and I don't imagine we'll spend too much time because there's not a whole lot uh, really to talk about. But the running back position is an interesting one because Bills haven't relied on the run heavily because um, they haven't had to. Uh, they've been able to pass really effectively. Um, what should we expect to see out of the running game? Is it, well, I guess I should I should clarify: is the running game has it been less of a factor because it hasn't needed to be, or is it a struggle? Um, I think it's fair to say a little of both. So I don't know how much of it is. Hey, it's kind of hard to get into a rhythm where multiple times until midway through the fourth quarter, each running back has had three or four carries. You know, sometimes maybe that's hard to get into a rhythm with that kind of thing where we've had a lot of games where it's been 38 passes and eight runs. And now all of a sudden, "Eh, all right, now we'll run the ball and and, and go with it. And so a lot of the efficiency stats are heavily skewed because sometimes half the running plays are, are in pure four-minute mode where they know you're running the ball. Now, they've actually still had some decent runs there and converted fourth downs. They ended the Steelers game with a seven-minute and 11-minute drive where they ended up taking knees and didn't even need to score. Um, Did the same thing to the Patriots, did the same thing to the Broncos, um, where they've been able to take the air out of the ball at the end when it's needed. So from that standpoint, it's functioned where we needed it. In some games where they've found a coverage combination that Josh couldn't quite get and they maybe needed the run game, it hasn't been there. So I don't think it's an option to pivot to away from the uh, pass game, but I also would be shocked that any scenario happened where that would be forced, where they'd have to go away from it. The Bills are you know, the second pass happiest team in the league, so you know, getting to 60-40 would be run heavy for them. I would be surprised, given the Colts' strengths and weaknesses, if uh, if this was a game where they decided to suddenly bring out the running yeah. game. Uh, very, seems very likely, Se- yeah, very Seahawks game plan. I I don't think yeah. it's I don't think it's crazy that they could pass on the first twenty five plays of the game. I don't think that would yeah. be that wouldn't shock me. It wouldn't be surprising, and it probably wouldn't be a bad game plan either. <laughs> uh, okay, well, let's. I want to talk about one of my. Uh, one of the so I scouted for our Colts draft guide uh, that we put out every year, and Dawson Knox was uh, I did the tight ends, and so Dawson Knox was a guy I matched as a possible fit with the Colts. Um, liked him a lot, and just interested to see uh, how he's doing. Uh, I haven't gotten to see him since he's he's joined the Bills, and I'm uh, he was a player I I really felt like could be a guy who could be unlocked as a lot of potential. Um, maybe maybe take a little time to develop, but could really be something special if given that time. So how's he been? So when you when you let off with Josh Allen has 4,500 yards passing and 46 total touchdowns, you'd assume that the number one tight end would have a pretty good year. Um, it's he's complete boomer bust. He makes some of the most spectacular contested catches. He, you know, 
every it's almost a joke now for Bills fans. Every time that he catches the ball, he is looking to get a highlight stiff arm. Every time. Like not even <laughs> not even some of the time. Every single time he gets the ball, he is looking to humiliate the defender with a stiff arm. And he's done it maybe four or five times. They got the angry, angry run from Good Morning Football, and he's had a couple of those. But then he'll also have mind-numbingly easy pass drops where he just, his catch rate, you know, I I was kind of hopeful coming into this second year that we'd see a little bit of a step forward. You know, my co-host on the show, Aaron Quinn, likes to say a lot, he's still a weapon for this offense because his athleticism at the tight end position is a threat the defensive coordinators have to plan for. Even if part of their plan might be best suited letting him try to catch it and just hoping he drops it rather than devoting coverage to him. Um, But the fact that he's such a good athlete, he still has to be planned for. So um, I hope that he can develop beyond there where we just haven't seen it consistently. Um, He's had a couple nice games recently. You know, he had a game recently with, you know, maybe four catches for 60 yards and a touchdown, but that's probably his best game on the year just because he hasn't been able to consistently put it together. And, you know, in a just the alternative world, they haven't needed him when you have four receivers producing the way that they have. Sure. Sure. Uh, I mean, that sounds a little bit like what the Colts got out of Eric Ebron for a couple of seasons. Very uh, similar. Probably very, 90% uh, of Ebron. Um, very great season in 2018. And then in 2019, he was used largely as a decoy because how are you going to, I mean, you can't ignore a guy with those kind of gifts, even if, like you said, you're going to have the mind numbing drops. Uh, you also get those highlight plays mixed in and that's going to keep defensive coordinators up at night. And and you definitely have to pay attention to that. So, and and he's a good blocker. He's a willing, he's a good athlete. Who's a willing blocker. And that at least has some value. Oh, so nothing like Eric Ebronin. <laughs> Eric Ebronin doesn't even – he blocks people on social media, and that's the only place I think I, he's I will say, anyone. Having a guy like Lee Smith in that room is such a gift. Having, you know, pretty easily the best blocking tight end in the NFL. He's He is an offensive lineman. He's not really a tight end. Um, having him in the room is just such a gift for any of the younger guys. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Colts use a lot of uh, – not Jack Doyle does a lot of blocking yeah. and uh, those man, those guys, even if they're not going to make the highlight real plays, it, man, it's so great to have the young guys come in and be developed with, with people like that. So um, offensive line, this is an area of complete knowledge gap for me. I know nothing okay. about the bills offensive line. Uh, tell us a little bit about this line, how have they held up. What's the, what are their strengths, weaknesses? Um, yeah, how have they done? So, they had some injury challenges and a couple spots moving back and forth, but they've really solidified it the last five, six games here, especially coming out of the bye. This obviously the the offensive onslaught you've seen, you know, six straight double digit wins, the last three by four touchdowns plus. Uh, they've had the same offensive line that whole run and pretty healthy. So Deion Dawkins is the only like plus elite player out of the group. He's a he's a legit franchise left tackle. He's a, a top 10 tackle. He's not a top five tackle, but he's probably one of those guys that are the sixth to 10th best in the league that people just don't realize he's that good. Um, he's He is a powerful guy. Guys, uh, so Brandon Thorne's one of my favorite offensive line guys oh, yeah. to follow. Uh, Brandon talks about it all the time. He is the meanest left tackle in the NFL. Like he is just a powerful, mean guy who likes to embarrass other people. Um, next to him, we've had a really good run with John Feliciano. So John Feliciano was a guy who was kind of discovered by Bobby Johnson, uh, a name you guys have, have seen before, um, and kind of brought him back in 
uh, from the Raiders. He was a, a utility backup guy who's blossomed into a really solid starter. Mitch Morse was a great signing from Kansas City. Um, he's played well. He's had a couple uh, concussion issues, but he's been clean the last six weeks. Um, and is elite moving and a great pass blocker and an okay run blocker. But we pass the ball so much that it doesn't come up all that often. Um, then the right guard spot has been the challenge. We've had a revolving door all season. It was Quentin Spain for a little bit. Then he threw a hissy fit when he lost his starting <laughs> job and they had to release him because he literally told them I'm not a backup with some other you know colorful words mixed in there. Um they bounce back and forth trying to get Cordy Ford to work, and then he got hurt. And then magically, they've stumbled into this guy, Ike Bacher, who's been a practice squad guy who they've protected for the last three years, but has played really well and has graded out incredibly well. You know, from a PFF standpoint, from just breaking down film and watching him, he's looked shockingly good. I was really worried about him. He, I, I, I'm now curious if we found something here with what this guy is and then right tackle has been a reclamation project with daryl williams so daryl williams was an all pro in carolina back you know in 2017 then blew out his knee in his contract year then all of a sudden came back and, and signed you know and, and tried to get into a deal and got put into you know rehabbing too quick moved to left tackle and the left guard and it just never quite worked. They plugged him back in at right tackle, and he's been awesome. So he was the PFF All-Pro uh, in the first half of the season and has been maybe 90% of that in the second half, but is now actually we're petrified because Matt Milano's contract is up, John Feliciano's contract is up, and Daryl Williams is on a one-year, one $2 million deal, and now we want all three of them back, and I don't know that we can afford them all. <laughs> uh, he might have priced himself out for us, uh, but he's playing fantastic football right now, no more so than he shut down TJ Watt for an entire game solo with no help. Yeah, that's, that's, I, I, it's hard to have a better, you know, resume builder. Like when contract time comes, just hand that piece of film just, across the table. Yeah, absolutely. You didn't yeah. chip or give me help all game, and TJ Watt had one tackle. Yeah. Yeah, that's a pretty nice one to be able to hang your hat on for sure. Your agent loves to be able to yeah. knock yeah. that on the table. Uh, okay, so if you had to put together a game plan to try to mitigate this Bills offense, uh, what are you going to focus on? Obviously not a, not a challenge that anybody is excited to take on, but but how, but how do you start? Well, what is it that you would do to try to mitigate that offense? So one of the biggest pieces is having a game wrecker in the middle. Um, so that's by far the biggest concern that I have is DeForest Buckner, yeah. uh, specifically DeForest Buckner against Ike Bakker and, you know, an undrafted free agent guy that we're plugging yeah. in. Um, Mitch Morris and Daryl Williams have done a good job with communication. They're obviously not going to put him on an island and, and leave him by himself. But if you can get creative with stunts and twists and movement um, and are able to get him isolated there, um, Josh has done pretty good in getting rid of the ball quickly, but he also overall has the longest time from snap to throw in the NFL. Um, part of that is because he's the hardest quarterback to sack in the NFL because he's 6'5", 250, um, and it's kind of hard to bring him down. So, But he does that to his own detriment. And obviously, you know, Josh is able to stiff arm and hold off a lot of the modern defensive ends who are now... 6'3", 240 coming off the yep. edge, and he's literally bigger than them. Mm -hmm. um, 
that DeForest Buckner is not that. Um, so, you know, DeForest Buckner can bring Josh Allen down by himself. Um, so that's my biggest fear. And what I would do is pressure in Josh's face quickly before he can make decisions. And then on the back end, it's the only success anyone's had this year is confusing him and being able to have coverages where he can't figure out what it is because if he gets any indication and knows where he's supposed to go he's been pretty pretty solid and he's done okay moving into second and third reads I know a lot of people will hear that um and think of previous years Josh Young he's, he's done fine moving into other progressions but less so obviously less so than when he knows exactly where to go with the ball then you have basically no chance um but if you can get some disguise coverages, confuse him a little bit, and then the pressure has to get home. You have to get to him and get him down. But if you do, that's the recipe, is to be able to get pressure in his face and then disguise coverages in the back. Um, you know, So far, the blitz hasn't done great. He's been able to find the reads and get it out. Dable's done pretty well giving him answers to that. Um, so it's been pressure with four, which I know is, is something you guys do. You, you know, Not that you don't blitz, but you know, pressure with a four, disguise coverages in the back end um, and just hope for some big plays. Yeah. Well, and that's kind of been in line with what I've seen so far from watching them. The thing that gives me nightmares is, is I remember specifically, and I don't remember the game, but you probably will know it watching uh, Allen scramble through the middle where he had no business really being able to get through there. He just was through this tiny hole. So quick 30 yards scamper into the end zone. And I watched it like five times. And then I had to stop because it was giving me, cold sweats um because there wasn't really a hole there it was it was a running back size hole and he just i mean he just had the speed to take it the speed and the wherewithal to take advantage and i i I, my worry is that uh with deforest buckner nursing a banged up ankle and not really looking quite like his dominant self that he did earlier in the season i i'm concerned but but that that was the broncos game that that he did that and it's he's He's deceivingly fast. Like he's, he's Big guy, really, guys that size aren't supposed to be able to move like that. Yeah, six, six five two fifty. <laughs> you're not supposed to be able to do that. And it's he gets his top speed's not actually like elite. It's not like he's running a four four or anything like that. But he runs like a solid like high four fives. And he gets to his top speed shockingly quick for as big as he is. That's the tough part. Yeah. Is his acceleration's tough. Yeah. He guys that are better athletes than him that think they can get the the angle on him underestimate him, and he beats him to the corner. He he yeah. scores on that quarterback sweep all the time because guys think they can outrun him, and they take the wrong angle rather than taking the angle they should, treating yeah. him like a running back, and they would be able to meet him at the at the spot. Instead, they take him like you know, not like you're, it's Philip Rivers, but like you're going. Going after <laughs> another, you know, less athletic quarterback, and all of a sudden they're like, "Oh crap, he's already passed me," and he scores. Yeah, Philip Rivers. Uh, my joke is that he's the only quarterback who is as slow as Peyton Manning's statue outside of uh, Lucas Oil Stadium. <laughs> I don't know that I've ever seen a human move as slowly as Philip Rivers moves. So there's I, no, I no better comparison. He has one scramble for three yards in the past three seasons. Yeah, he hasn't scored, I think it's nine seasons that he's gone without scoring a rushing touchdown. So no quarterback sneaks. I mean, we literally bring Jacoby Brissett in I, if they're going to run a quarterback <laughs> sneak because because Philip Rivers, and some of it's because he's old and he's got back issues and everything, but some of it is also because he just moves so dreadfully slow. It's it's painful to watch along with his awful throwing motion. Those are two awful things to watch. I've, I've enjoyed watching many things about him. Those are not any of yeah. Those two are not among them. The, the physics of how he gets the ball, where he gets 
to, to makes zero it. sense. It uh, makes he, no sense. He learned to throw a football from the shot put coach in track. I mean, that's it's it's the most awkward and awful thing, and it works. I don't know. He, I mean, you know, borderline all famers. So how do you how do you that that pass? <laughs> so Bills fans have obviously brought that up, and it's like go watch that touchdown pass to Zach Pascal. You go watch that and let me know that you're not worried. But like he can still yeah. get the ball where he needs to get it to. It might not look pretty, but he gets there. Yeah, I I don't know how he's done it, but it's been I mean it's been equally ugly his whole career. So I don't I don't know. Yeah. I got no explanations yeah. for that. But well, let's jump over to the defensive side of the ball here. Um, this isn't a defense that gets talked about a lot because they're kind of overshadowed by the offense. Yeah. Um, now I, I have a tendency to with opponents the Colts don't play that often to live in the reputation of the team from whatever the year is that we played them last and so when I think of the Bills first and foremost I think of kind of a scout defense because that's what they were known for uh, really even as as recently as early Josh Allen um, years I mean they were they were good defense and I think that's still the case but I think that they just don't get the the credit because of of you know, the, how good the offense has been. They rank fourth in in the league in takeaways. Um, are they underrated or is it basically, uh, does the team go as the offense goes? Can this, can this defense come out and kind of win a game if the offense is not doing what they have been doing over the past month of the season? So they were outright bad at the beginning of the year. The good news for Bills fans was there was a reason. It, you know, they had a weird stretch of injuries. You know, you had both Tremaine Edmonds and Matt Milano get hurt in the first game. You had Trey, Trey White get hurt in the third game. We've missed Matt Milano for half the season. We didn't have the same secondary play two games in a row until the ninth week of the season. The one position group that was pretty healthy was the defensive line where half the guys were new and didn't have a normal training camp or offseason or preseason games. So early on in the season, it was weird because, like you said, we had been used to a really good defense and an offense barely good enough to keep us in games, and that was the recipe for all three years of McDermott coming into this year. And all of a sudden, we're outscoring teams, but we're giving up a lot and giving up a ton of garbage time and a ton of late late game yards and couldn't stop anybody. And all of a sudden, we're like, all right, this is kind of weird, and then hit some bad stretches. I mean, honestly, some really ugly football for a while there. And now they're kind of catching their stride. And it's it's not back to the level that it was the last couple of years. Where I mean, a couple of years there, they were top two, top three. But now you have a different kind of team where before Leslie Frazier and Sean McDermott couldn't be that aggressive. Because if you gave up a big play, the offense couldn't catch up. And now not only can they be more aggressive because the offense can catch up, now they can take way more aggressive shots. Because if we create an extra possession and go up by 14, you're done. You just can't catch up. So now they're calling a lot more aggressive, like crazy safety blitzes and all kinds of different zone uh, zone drops and and all kinds of different fun combinations that they haven't been able to do in the past. Because now if we get you confused for a play and create an extra possession, we're probably going to score on it. And having that kind of confidence to be aggressive is nice. So um, they're still... Having an offense like like they've put together recently, the yards the yardage numbers don't look that impressive. But there's a lot of garbage time in there. There's a lot of games where we've been up two or three possessions. Sure. So, te- you know, a good example. Tua played one of his worst games I've seen from a quarterback all year. He had three interceptions and four more that were dropped. But by the end of the game, he technically had 361 yards while we were celebrating and drinking beers. Um, so the the stats don't back it up. If you look yeah. at some things like weighted really DVOA, good example why you can't watch the stat line to to get the feel yeah. for a game. It just doesn't always give you what you need to know yeah. about what happened. So um, they Bills haven't gotten 
a ton of sack production from any one guy. Uh, top guy has five sacks. Is that because most of the, I mean, now obviously sacks aren't a measure of, of the kind of pressure. And I've, I've seen some information that shows that they're getting pressure on quarterbacks consistently, but maybe not always getting the sack. And, you know, a pressure is still, I mean, most defensive coaches are going to tell you that a pressure is, is worth a lot just because the sack doesn't happen. Doesn't mean that it doesn't impact the play. So um, are they, uh, they have a lot of guys who have multiple sacks. Is it more a function of the type of defense that they play that it's kind of spread out and uh, opportunities are being created because they're just getting creative with how they do things? Or is it just that there isn't really any one guy who's kind of a dominant player or, uh, or is it just that they're just, they haven't gotten home and they're getting lots of disruption and pressure, but it's not manifesting itself in sacks. So definitely a combination. Um, there is no DeForest Buckner, Aaron Donald, you know, there's no Von Miller. There's no, um, you know, just elite, the, you know, Khalil Mack or TJ Watt. There's no elite one, one-on-one game record guy on the defense or on the defensive line for sure. Um, but they have a nine-man rotation of really solid top-end players that the first guy versus the ninth guy isn't all that different. Uh, It reminds me a little bit of that run the Eagles went on in their Super Bowl year where there wasn't maybe an elite game record. They just had waves of guys that kept coming at you over and over again. So 16 different guys have a sack. Even though no one has more than five sacks, um, they Jerry Hughes does have a you know he's fifty two pressures. That's a pretty elite number. That's a top yeah. ten number overall. Um, but beyond that, it's just a bunch of guys who are pretty good. So the Bills are, I think, second in pass rush win rate, second in pressure grade in PFF. So some of those underlying stats of, um, I think if you look at the time from snap to throw, they have the lowest in the NFL. So quarterbacks get the ball out very quickly against the Bills. So some of that stuff is influenced because sure. of the pressures, even though I'd love to see them get home a little more often. Um, sure. But it, it hasn't been that they don't have a pass rush. It's just that, you know, I think they're 11th in sacks or something like that, not not elite or, or anything strong. Um, and it comes at you in waves. And they very much, almost all of the sacks are third and fourth quarter because the recipe has led yep. to a fresh set of linemen still coming at you in waves mm-hmm. and a, a team that scored a fair amount of points. And now we know you're going to have to pass and we can pin our ears back. And yep. they've really been great. Um, I think it's something crazy like 80% of our turnovers are in the second half and like 70% of our sacks are in the second half. Uh, so the defense oftentimes doesn't look good until the end and then all of a sudden it just starts that you know flywheel effect and all of a sudden the game gets out of hand. Well, Colts fans remember that well because the Peyton Manning era with Freeney and Mathis coming off the edges, that was very much the case with them. They're getting into the third and fourth quarters, putting up lots of points and then able to really go to town. So uh, definitely familiar territory, not a huge fan of being on the opposite side of it, to be honest. But uh, um, so Jonathan Taylor for the Colts, Colts running back, um, has really blown up over the past six weeks. He's got 741 yards, seven touchdowns, uh, didn't have a great start to a season, actually got benched in favor of Jordan Wilkins uh, around the middle of the season and deserved it. He, he wasn't playing well. Uh, he was impatient. And he was he was missing spots, but he has been um, one of the best running backs in football over the past few weeks and uh, had a 253-yard, two-touchdown um outing against the Jaguars and was really the reason that the Colts are in the playoffs because they didn't play well otherwise. Uh, but I mean, he, he played great and has looked like a totally different player. How's the Bills defense handled 
runners who are going to kind of go right up the middle and uh, kind of a smash mouth guy. He's not Derrick Henry, but he's still able to really, you know, get yards after the after contact and uh, be a real effective running presence. So it, the other half of that, if I was going to build the recipe for a, a Bills or a Colts upset, it would be the defense like I described it, and then an offense that can genuinely play keep away, 12 to 15 play drives, keep the ball out of the Bills' hand, end the game with 40-plus minutes time of possession, and finish it with touchdowns, not field goals. You are not going to beat the Bills by kicking field goals. But if you have a guy who, you know, yes, it might be five- and six-yard carries early, but then eventually you wear him down, and when he gets a crack, you get that track speed out there, um, the Bills don't have a bevy of athletes on defense. It's very much a team mentality, a rally to the ball mentality, um, you know, gang tackling kind of thing. They don't have somebody who's going to just outrun him to the corner or chase him down from behind. Um, so I have major concern with, with the way that they can approach that, that he can keep um, drives alive and be able to go on those long, tedious um, you know, clock killing drives and then ended in a touchdown. And all of a sudden we look up and the Bills had one possession in the second quarter, that kind of thing. Um, that's the recipe it's going to take in my mind. It's going to take a big game from Buckner getting in, in Josh's face. It's going to take some turnovers and then it's going to take long clock killing drives with someone like Jonathan Taylor. I, I honestly don't even know if hitting big play home run runs will help. I, I almost think like I almost think you want a bunch of seven and thirteen yard runs yeah. and to keep the ball away because you know I, I think that the bills haven't found a secondary that can keep up with their receivers yet you know not that they won't yeah. but they haven't found one yet that can keep up with their receivers and the best strategy is going to be just keeping the ball away from them yeah. Uh, I, I mean, and the Colts have, have had success doing that, this in the past. Um, they went to Arrowhead and beat Kansas City uh, last year and did it with Jacoby Brissett somehow. Um, and he that was interesting. But uh, it, it was by the same way. I mean, long drives. Um, and I think my almost my worry is that Jonathan Taylor's been so good that if he has that kind of success, he may break off big runs and then just give the ball right back to the offense, which you, you do not want to do. So um, I don't know. I'll be very interested to see how that how that works. He's been an, a, a very exciting guy to watch over the back oh, yeah. half of the season. Uh, but I'll, I'll be interested to see how he matches up um, and what they're able to make of him. I, I will say – I will be flabbergasted if he doesn't have a good game regardless. It's just going to be, is it going to be good enough to be able to tilt it to the Colts? I will be shocked if he doesn't have a good game. The Bills have had poor run defense all year. An example would be, you know, the the Patriots ran for 165 yards at like six yards a clip, but the Bills held them to like 55 passing yards and ended up beating them 38 to nine. So they're going to give up. They're comfortable giving up rushing yards and just trying to eventually you're going to get a false start or we're going to get you for a no gain. And once we get you into second and 10, they have one of the best modern pass defenses in the league. Um, They're just going to dare you to see, do you have the discipline to keep running it at us? 
Yeah, it'll be very interesting to see how Frank Reich does things. He's been a kind of an infuriating play caller in the second half at times for Colts fans. And then you watch some things and realize some of those have been not as much issues with play calling as they have been with execution. So it'll be I'll be interested to see. Um, And and the next group that I'm interested in, as far as the linebackers, um, the Colts like to go over the middle. They like the short and intermediate passing game. Uh, They use Naheem Hines a lot in that passing game. Uh, Very faster guy than Jonathan Taylor and uh, actually played slot receiver in in college. And so he's a a very good pass catching back. Um, How the linebackers fared, uh, how how will they hold up? You've already said not a ton of, of, you know, necessarily athletes but a lot of you know team play mentality uh gang tackling and whatnot but how have they fared against that kind of a player and do you see that being problematic for them um so they have two very good linebackers and if either one of them miss any time it goes downhill dramatically so early in the season um you know Tremaine Edmonds is a you know like a a Brian Erlacher level specimen physically like he, he's 6'5 with he so he's six five and has a seven foot two inch wingspan <laughs> and ran a four five forty. So like in their zone defense, he covers like hash to hash. It, the zone. It's it's <laughs> unbelievable what he can do in the middle. Um he's still he's also a weirdo. He came out when he was nineteen, so he's in his third season, just had his second Pro Bowl and just turned twenty two. Um so he still he over pursues sometimes, he gets a little aggressive. You can get him on some play action stuff. Um, but he's he's very good at his job. He cleans up a lot. The big fulcrum is Matt Milano. When Matt Milano's available, he's a college safety. So he's kind of your your opposite of Naheem Hines. He was a college safety who converted to linebacker and now is but you know, initially was, you know, six foot two thirty and now is bulked up a little bit beyond there, but has more of that sideline to sideline ability, is fantastic against tight ends and is good against running backs. Um so he would be the guy who will be matched up there and then a lot of Taron Johnson chasing him down. That the Bills have had games where they literally play a hundred percent snaps out of nickel um and just run that every single snap of the game. Um that that's been a big part of their second half of the season is, you know, a team like the Niners who work very hard to manipulate you into the um, personnel that they want. When the 49ers were going too tight plus use check on the field, the Bills just stayed in nickel and just said, nope, that's fine. We can tackle. Go ahead. Give it your best. Um, so you're going to see nickel almost every play they try to mix in some AJ Klein just because he played pretty well for Matt Milano when he was out and he's earned some reps um but that's going to be the basics of it is going to be some combination of Taron Johnson out of the nickel Matt Milano at linebacker if you guys can get some reps where you can get Naheem Hines isolated on AJ Klein he should get a hundred percent of targets in those in those snaps um so i'm hopeful that they can keep that fairly clean um and i'm I'm sure we'll get to the the secondary here in a moment but the safeties clean up a fair amount of that mess yeah absolutely well let's jump right into those uh secondary players the uh the corners have uh eight picks on the season according to what i found on uh, pro football reference um how how have they been this season? How have who are the who are the standout guys as far as just cornerbacks? Um, who are who are the standout guys? Who should we be concerned about? Uh, who do you think is going to be matched up against Ty Hilton specifically because he is probably the Colts' most established passing threat for sure. Um, so the Bills don't do a ton of follow and lockdown mm-hmm. of number one receivers. They play a lot of you're the left corner, you're the right corner. Um, 
Trey White's fantastic. He's going to get his second All Pro this season, um, or is going to be in the running for it. Deservedly sure. got got another uh, Pro Bowl. Um, just signed a you know at, prior to Jalen Ramsey signed the highest cornerback contract in history. Um, he's very very good, and life opposite him is difficult because you know he goes entire games without any targets, where people just don't test him, and sometimes when you do, he intercepts it. Um, so it it would be something where. They know that, and the reason they don't follow, they have a couple times when there's a true, like, a DeAndre Hopkins type where, like, mm-hmm. hey, unless we have Trey on there, you're just not going to be able to cover him. Uh, I'm going to say that with the Colts receiving court, they'll probably believe that their combo coverage will be sufficient, where if you're going to just run everybody away from Trey, they'll just tilt the safeties the other way and take advantage of it that they can leave Trey White on an island and if you're going to sacrifice, you know, Pittman or whoever or or Pascal over there and say that's fine, we'll leave him on Trey, they'll tilt the safeties the other way and then Levi Wallace or Josh Norman with extra safety help is sufficient cuz they're they're big physical guys who are good to to jam at the line of scrimmage. And then we have Micah Hyde over the top. So if you're going to try to go over the top, he's a pretty darn good center center fielder to cut those things out. Um, And they've been able to, to live by that for most of the season, just banking that, you know, we don't have a good cornerback too. It's a rotation of an undrafted guy and an over the hill guy. Um, But they've been good enough uh, to be able to patch it together. Well, and the guys that I'm concerned about specifically, you've already talked about them, Jordan Poyer and Micah Hyde, maybe one of the best safety tandems uh, in the NFL. Um, Underrated, I think, as well. Um, Maybe not as well known, but but two very good safeties. And um, what has been their what's their impact on this defense as far as well, you've already kind of outlined a little bit of what they let you do as far as kind of getting well. And then, you know, as a product of of uh, yeah, well. Sorry, I'll get out of your way. I'm, no, no, I'm, bad at, I'm bad at disengaging on these questions. I have <laughs> too many thoughts. No, no, it's, it's, it's great. The, uh, the fact that the last eight seasons, four from each of them for those two have resulted in one Pro Bowl is obscene. It's yeah. just unbelievable. Um, so I couldn't best... believe it when I saw that information. <sighs> I, I, I couldn't believe it legitimately. It, it, so <laughs> this year, if you look at the top 25 tacklers in the NFL, it's 24 linebackers and Jordan Poyer. And sometimes that's just terrible defenses. You know, somebody right. like the J- the Jags or the Jets have a safety who has a million yep. tackles because they're tackling running backs eight yards down the field. That's not the case with the Bills. He's, he's everywhere on the field all the time. And, you know, Micah Hyde is the free safety 60% of the time and Poyer is the strong safety, you know, 60% of the time, but they disguise coverages as a safety tandem better than any in the league. They played every snap together for four straight years. They know each other inside and out. Sometimes they'll have Taron Johnson or uh, Poyer trail the slot receiver in, in motion across the field just to fake you into thinking it's man, just to switch zones on the other side, just to give a false key to let the make the quarterback think that they're trailing just because it's man, just for fun. Um, they'll blitz when they're 13 yards off the line of scrimmage. They'll be down literally with a foot on the line of scrimmage to play deep thirds. It, it's unbelievable the things that they'll mess with during the game just to throw you off. So it's they're not necessarily the best athletes. They're not necessarily elite in coverage. It's just really hard to pick up on what they're doing, and they confuse guys an awful lot. So it's been a ton of fun. They're they're 
awesome to watch in film because obviously safeties are the guys you see the least on the broadcast. Um, so it's awesome every week when we get to watch them. And it, Eric and I always marvel at some of the stuff that that they do to be able to throw it up. He, you know, we did a film breakdown of the two of them and found some of those examples where, like, hey, we'll pause it right here and be like, just watch. He's blitzing from here. What and do you then, think this guy's gonna do? Yeah, not what you think. Correct. Yeah. Or you know, see somewhere. You know, they'll go and, again, when they know that Josh Norman's going to jam the corner, the receiver at the line of scrimmage, and he's pretty good at that. He's not going to keep up down the field. But Micah Hyde can come up and make it look like he's blitzing, and the combination of him knowing he's going to drop and Josh Norman uh, jamming, he can get back behind there, and the receiver can't beat him off the top. And it, it's just things like that. They've played around really well to be able to disguise coverages. And even if it's not an elite defense, they're a playmaking defense. Like you said, with the amount of turnovers and, and things that they create, they're aggressive in that stance. Well, Colts are Colts fans are really hoping they've got something like that kind of a duo in the making with Kari Willis and Julian Blackman, two guys who are, I think, good at those same types of things, but just early in their development. And, yeah, uh, just seen, to, you know, we've seen Kari Willis to build yeah. that. Yeah, we've seen Kari Willis uh, have a huge second season, um, and uh, so I'll be excited to see them in a couple of years and see if they've made that kind of progress. But definitely an impressive thing to have a couple of safeties who are are uh, kind of game-changing in that way. Uh, well, same question. I think you've kind of already addressed this, but I'll give you a, a, a chance to uh, reiterate and, and elaborate if you want to. But if you're game-planning against this defense, you've talked about you're going to run – uh, you're going to run the ball. Let's say you need to pass. Let's say that you need to target this team in the air because you've gotten behind. Are you done or are you able to target them in some kind of way other than just uh, on the ground? Or how, how would you go about that if you do have to resort to the pass? So it, 100% it's running the ball. I've joked all season that they are blatantly daring teams to say, you don't have the discipline to keep running at us. We know eventually you're going to want to pass the ball. And once you do, we got you. Um, so that that's the way that they go. If some team is just willing to keep running the ball at them, I think you can. Like, I, I don't think the Bills can stop the run game consistently. Um, so we'll, we'll see how, how that pans out. They, they've gotten better in the second Quentin half. Quentin Nelson would, is, would be thrilled to know this as well. I mean, that's... Yeah. Oh, he'd, yeah. be, he'd be all on board with that game plan. Oh, yeah. I, I'm petrified of it. Um, <laughs> then, if you pass, it's going to be um, stacked routes, stacked formations where you can get Trey White isolated on one side with a stacked formation on the other where Norman or Levi Wallace can't jam and you get a guy from behind who has athleticism who can get deep. So it's you know hiding T.Y. Hilton, not letting him get jammed at the line of scrimmage, and then hoping you can hit, it's going to be those honey hole shots where if Hilton can get behind the corner to the sideline before Micah Hyde can get over there and you hit a couple of those, that's going to be the 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 mix. It's going to be run, 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 and then you can get T.Y. Hilton loose. Um, he's not going to just blow by Micah Hyde, but you can get away from him. And if you can get that, that, that those are the ones that have hit for against the Bills is teams will hit that honey hole shot when they're in the zone and it just lands before Hyde can get to him at the sideline. And he's had several where he's, you know, hit a guy pretty hard at the sideline getting there, but he just can't get there before the ball does. Um, and, you know, you hit a couple of those for a 25-year, 30-yarder here and there, plus some some successful runs. That's the recipe that, that could cook it up. I, I, don't think, I don't think there's any scenario where Rivers throws the ball for 30 times in this game where you guys win. I, I just don't see that recipe being a part yeah. of it. But if you can have 
you know, no joke, 35 or 40 combined carries for between Hines and, and Taylor and 20 passes for, for Rivers, if that ends up being the box score, I'm very concerned with what that final score would be. They, they've actually done reasonably well getting T.Y. Hilton in those situations this year. They've stacked him several times behind Pascal or um, or behind Pittman and had him. He's gotten really good with Rivers running about a 12-yard out uh, and the toe drag to the, <laughs> the toe drag to the outside. Rivers can throw that that ball decently well. Um, it sort of surprised me. It was one of them I wasn't sure if he, he quite had the juice for. If he but, still had it. Um, yeah, he, he's he's done that pretty well. But that's really about the most that they've gotten from Hilton, except against bad pass defenses who have let him have the middle uh, of the field in the seam or, or something like that. And really have had no business uh, doing it. He has drawn quite a few pass interference charges, uh, I think, uh, penalties he's uh, he could give lebron a run for his money in terms of his flopping ability uh, i'm not sure it anybody works can, i'm not in sure the modern can, nfl it works yeah i don't think anybody can act quite like ty that's a new development with with age he's gotten to be a little bit more that way so uh well last thing i want to go over really quickly and I'm, i know i've i told you a half hour and here we are in an hour which is not the first time that's happened to me uh <laughs> but but i think it's been great and hopefully hopefully i'm not holding you up from anything no i've but, enjoyed uh, it i've enjoyed it but um how would you grade this Bills team as a whole for 2021 uh, or, or, well, 2020-2021 season? Uh, it's weird to be in the new year already. But uh, yeah, how would you what, – what grade would you give my – I imagine they've exceeded most of your expectations for them. But, right. but what, how do you grade this team out and what are your expectations going forward for this team? So, you know, on the season, may, maybe you make an argument it's an A- minus or something like that because they had some some – spotty stretches especially game five through eight that that second quarter of the season was a rough patch um but you know beyond that you're talking they're a hail mary away from winning 10 straight to end this season their only loss in the last 10 games is that ridiculous deandre hopkins hail mary um beyond that their last six games are by double digits the last three games by 28 plus you know I'm hard-pressed to believe there's a hotter team in the NFL right now. And that doesn't always translate. You know, there are teams that, that have, have not been able to translate that. Um, I I almost think it's a pseudo-blessing that the second seed doesn't get a bye this week and they have to jump right back into it after putting up 56 points. I almost would be nervous that if they had a full week off that they would lose some of the heat that they have rolling. But right now... You can't convince me that there's a team they can't beat. Now, you know, you want to say that if they played the Chiefs 10 times, you think that the Chiefs would, would win more than the Bills? Okay, you know, I'll, I'll give you that. It's not 10. <laughs> I can tell yeah. you that. Yeah. Um, and that I, I'm, I'm perfectly comfortable going head-to-head with the Chiefs right now that they have a shot to do that. So, you know, I, I spelled it out. It, I wasn't that concerned because every team that the Bills were going to play in the first round was a team where I could – kind of blindly blindly describe as they have a pretty good run game with some guys who can get to Josh Allen in the pass rush, but they don't really have the secondary to keep up with our receivers. And I think eventually that'll be a problem because that's how you would describe Tennessee or Cleveland or Baltimore or, you know, that, Hey, they got a run game that concerns me, but I'm pretty sure we can outscore them. Um, so that, that's what it is. I, I think that if the, the bills played the Colts 10 times here, you know, they're not beating them 10 times. The, the Colts have a, are a good team. They, they'd win some of those games. And one of those games could be Saturday. Um, yeah. I'll certainly be disappointed if that's the outcome with, with the t- the season they sure. put together here. Um, 
I think they're a touchdown favorite for a reason. I think that's a, a reasonable, uh, you know, spread on this game. Um, and I certainly, I don't expect it to be a blowout. I expect the Colts to put up points. I expect the Colts to, I expect Jonathan Taylor to have a good game. And eventually, I think the Bills passing game is going to be a little bit too much, and they're going to just outpace them at, at some point in the second yep. half. Um, but I think we're in for a good, exciting, fun game. Well, last thing, and I, I somehow managed to miss this, and I don't want to spend too much time on it, but how has the special teams unit been for the Bills? The Colts have had some luck there. Uh, they've Games where the special teams unit has really been um, on, they've, they've started with good field position. I imagine for the Bills offense, it doesn't matter as much to have good field position because any time that they're on the field is good field position. Uh, but how has the special teams unit been as a whole? Have there been any struggles or has it been kind of a non-factor? Has it been, has it been good? Um, I would say early maybe a non-factor or a neutral. In the second half of the year, a significant plus. So um, the only reason that Rodrigo Blankenship hasn't been a runaway for the best rookie kicker is because Tyler Bass outscored him. Um, and that, you know, I, I think it's 141 to 139. Um, so Bass had some struggles early on and has now made his last 23 straight kicks and his only miss in the last 30 was a 61 yarder against Seattle that they did just for fun at the end of the half. But does um, he have the rec specs though? That's he does not. He does not have the rec specs. Although he does go, he does so we call him left eye like the the, oh the girl rapper TLC. from TLC he wears one eye black only under his left eye and it's hysterical and he wow. talks way more trash than any kicker should talk but it's funny no that's fantastic it's that's, it's great it's great that's, that's the only thing that makes the kicker interesting is yeah. if they're just going to be a complete trash talking kicker that's fantastic yes and he's um, somehow like a like a 5'10", 200-pound guy who can kick the ball like 70 yards. It's it's unbelievable. It doesn't make any sense. Uh, the Bills actually have the youngest kicker-punter combo in the NFL. So um, between a rookie kicker and Tyler Bass and a second-year punter in Corey Bajorquez, um, Bajorquez was a very fun – this is something Colts fans will be used to from the Manning era. Uh, Corey Bajorquez was not eligible for the league lead in punting average because he hadn't punted enough times. Um, so the Bills – you know, Josh Allen scored more touchdowns than Corey Bajorquez had punts. Um, so he just became eligible in the last game of the season because he punted three times for the first time in 10 games. And now is the league leader in punting average. He actually averaged 50.8 yards per punt. But he also had, I think, like six games where he only punted once. So it's it's been neutral. Andre Roberts is a good returner. The return units are good. Um, it's a, a net positive, not a, a huge grand slam, but a good special teams unit. They've spent some good money on Tyler Medikevich. Uh they, they took from Pittsburgh after leading the league in special teams tackles. Taiwan Jones that they, they brought over from, from Houston. Uh, multiple guys that are good special teams players. Uh, so it's a, it's a plus. It's not some huge advantage, but it's a good special teams unit. Awesome. Hey, well, I certainly appreciate you taking time to to kind of lay everything out for us, talk with us a little bit, and give everybody a really good uh, feel for what we're up against. Uh, if you would just tell everybody where they can find your stuff, uh, where can they find your work, and uh, yeah, get, plug anything that you that you got going. Yeah, so 
Um, obviously, you know, I, I'm very Bill centric over at Cover One and, and focus solely on the Bills with the the Bills uh, Cover One Buffalo preview show and post game show. Um, we have a lot of great guys you guys would love to check out from a draft standpoint that you've worked with. I know Chris and and uh, different guys, Zach Hicks, that you guys are familiar with, and in, in your world has worked with us as well. Um, so guys that do a lot of great draft work over at Cover One, check out what they're doing. It's a lot of fun. But you can find us at CoverOne.net, the Cover One app, or over anywhere on a. Uh, youtube spotify and anywhere that has live streams or podcasts nowadays we're on all those different places so uh the cover one buffalo podcast is uh, where you can find me very good well guys that's all for us uh we're gonna be looking forward to this game it's gonna be if nothing else exciting i feel confident in saying that if the colts don't manage to sneak a win I would be very happy to root for this Bills team. I think it could be a very exciting uh, run for them if if that's the way things go. Uh, obviously, the Frank Reich connection there, it's going to be pretty easy to uh, to root for Bills uh, if things don't go the way Colts fans hope they, they maybe get a chance to. Um, anyway, it's nice to be playing playoff football. It's exciting yeah. to be talking about it. And uh, everybody, we'll, we'll catch you back. Uh, I think on Friday we'll be back. Uh, to give you a little bit of uh, of a closer preview, Colts-specific game preview. We're going to go through all that. You guys can check us out, subscribe to the channel, all that good stuff, and we'll catch you guys later.